Nick, it's finally here. We're Chiefs. Oh my gosh. It's been a long time coming. And I don't know about you, but I did my first Chief call like a couple days ago and man, that was scary. Definitely. Uh, but actually, what's been really helpful for me, Nick, is the email uh, that I get every single day from OBG First that is detailing some new research or some new guideline. In fact, I just told my attending about that new guideline that we got about GBS prophylaxis and screening. Yeah. So, I mean, OBG First really has been a lifesaver as a third year, and I'm sure now as a chief too, going online, being able to quickly access summaries, bulleted, detailed, even being able to access things from latest research makes you look like a whiz in front of your attendings and look like you're ready to pass your oral boards. The greatest thing is that if you're like a chief like Nick or I, you get to have OBG first absolutely free for one year. That's right. Free for one whole year. To find out how, head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Click on the link and you too can get OBG first for absolutely free. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over, Over Coffee. Coffee. So today we're going to take a little bit different of an approach, and we're going to talk about domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and gun control, because believe it or not, ACOG actually has a position on gun control. So Faye, what are our learning objectives today? Yeah, so for today, we are going to discuss domestic violence and its prevalence, and we're also going to identify evidence-based screening tools for IPV and DV, as we're going to call these two terms. And finally, we're going to discuss legislative advocacy endorsed by ACOG with respect to gun violence. So to start off just to with definitions, again, IPV, or intimate partner violence, is defined as a pattern of assaultive and or coercive behavior perpetrated by someone in a dating or intimate relationship with an adult or an adolescent aimed at establishing control of that person over the other. Examples of this behavior can include things like physical violence, but also extends to psychological abuse, sexual assault, stalking, deprivation, intimidation, or reproductive coercion. Faye, it's pretty broad, the scope of the problem. I had no idea. Absolutely. Unfortunately, um, as you're alluding to, Nick, IPV is a problem that is exceedingly common. It is estimated to affect up to one in three American women, which is quite shocking. Mm -hmm. um, and more than 4.8 million incidents of physical or sexual assaults occur annually. One in five American women report being the victim of sexual assault during their lifetime, and the costs are also astonishing. There's an estimated 250,000 annual hospital visits as a direct result of IPV, with the cost of care associated with it to be estimated over $8 billion every year. Wow. Yeah. Finally, IPV results in 2,000 deaths in 2007, according to ACOG Committee Opinion 518, which was last updated in 2012. And all of these estimates um, are thought to be pretty conservative, as these assaults are likely to go underreported. Let's talk a little bit more about the populations that are at higher risk for IPV, Nick. So who are these people? Yeah. So... To start off, I guess, one that's near and dear to our hearts is budding MFMs or pregnant women. Over 324,000 pregnant women are assaulted annually in the United States. High rates of unintended pregnancy are reported in this particular population, as are forms of reproductive coercion, such as birth control sabotage. 
IPV in pregnancy also is associated with poor pregnancy outcomes, and it's been associated with things like preterm birth, low birth weight, poor maternal weight gain, anemia, stillbirth, pelvic fractures even, um, placental abruption, fetal injury, and homicide. And actually, homicide is a significant contributor to maternal mortality. Another population, Nick, are adolescents. Mm. And one in 10 high school adolescents in the U.S. report being the victim of violence from a dating partner. Um, and of adolescents who are having sexual intercourse, this number increases to one in five. And adolescent violence is actually associated with violence later in life. They are at high risk of poor recognition as forms of violence because um, these forms may be more discreet. So things like cyberbullying or um, social network with nude pictures and things like that. Another group at risk are immigrant women. Women from different backgrounds, it's important to note, may have different perceptions of IPV and do need culturally appropriate care. Additionally, immigrant women may be afraid to report IPV due to fears of deportation or associations with law enforcement from previous experiences in other places. Non-immigrant visas allow women and families who are victims of substantial physical or mental violence to be allowed to legally stay in the United States. But again, this is a legal process that requires people to come forward. And so there's some risk and it does require us as physicians really to try and screen this particular population. Absolutely. And that brings us to our final group who are at risk. These are women with disabilities and older women. So essentially, these are patients who rely on caregivers for their needs, um, and they are more susceptible to abuse because there is a power dynamic at play. And this can be exploited by caregivers in terms of things like denying victims even their most basic needs. And 90% of elder abuse actually occurs through perpetrators known to the victim. And approximately two-thirds of the perpetrators are the patient's children or even their partners. And many shelters may not be adequately resourced to respond to the needs of these patients who have disabilities or who need additional assistance, like uh, older women. These women are at high risk of just having poor support. Now that we've identified some of our more at-risk populations, Nick, how should we screen for IPV? Yeah, so ACOG recognizes that OBGYNs are in optimal position to screen women for IPV, given the nature of our relationship with patients, the continuity of that relationship, and the frequency of visits. Women should be screened on a regular basis, especially as many victims do not disclose abuse even when asked directly the first or even multiple times after that. For pregnant women, Screening should occur at the initial prenatal visit and at least once per trimester. ACOG does say that this can be performed with a written protocol or an in-person screening, and these are thought to be equally effective. Faye, what about the environment for screening? Yeah, so you should always screen your patients when the patient is alone in a safe setting, and if an interpreter is needed, only professional interpreters rather than family members um, should be used. Office staff should be trained in recognizing warning signs for IPV and printed materials should be available um, throughout the office for safety procedures, hotline numbers, and referral information. And I know in our clinic, Nick, especially, these are located in the bathroom on the back of doors for women-only yeah, bathrooms. Exactly. And that does offer, like again, a discreet ability for patients to seek out that care even if they don't say anything to us. Definitely. Language is another important thing. You know, stigmatizing words such as abuse, rape, 
battered violence should all be avoided. In terms of coming up with screening questions without that stigmatizing language, again, that ACOG committee opinion, um, number 518, actually has great screening questions that are both culturally appropriate and non-stigmatizing. If there is a positive screening to these questions, the first goal is to ascertain that the patient's immediate safety is there and to assist in the development of a safety plan. So offering a private phone in your office for the patient to call the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which uh, is 1-800-799-SAFE or 7233 is an important step as phone logs and internet usage is sometimes monitored by abusive partners. Um, local domestic violence agencies are often the best resources to help contract safety plans and arrange for shelter. Patients who have a risk of homicide should be identified, and these should be things like knowing if their partners have access to guns, if there's been previous violence, or if there's estrangement from that partner. Intimate partner violence sometimes is a mandatory reporting element, and this varies again by jurisdiction, so it's important to know your state's particular laws. If the patient is a minor, that does qualify as child abuse, and so that requires mandatory reporting to police regardless of your jurisdiction. In the case of elderly persons or persons with disabilities, there are often adult protective services agencies, but the requirements for reporting, again, vary greatly by state in this population. On our website, we'll have links to where you can find the summaries of your state laws. And again, this is something that's helpful to peruse through or even just to keep bookmarked on your computer or your phone to, in case you do end up encountering a positive screen. So Nick, I know we talked a lot about IPV. Let's move on to um, ACOG's stance on gun violence. So what does ACOG have to say about this? Because this is very important to IPV. Yeah, and I think, you know, as again, as OBGYNs, we've already identified in this episode how important we are to identifying problems with women because we're there with them all the time. And ACOG recognizes this as along with multiple other um, professional organizations and in the wake of the Parkland, Florida shootings, called into further research for gun violence and more appropriate restrictions on firearms sales. Um, that statement will have posted on our website as well. ACOG advocacy does list an evidence-based approach to gun violence as a legislative priority. Um, there are six components of this that Faye and I can go over now. The first is the recommendation for routine screening for intimate partner violence, as we've already discussed. And that second is they recommend periodic injury prevention evaluation and counseling regarding firearms. So talking to your patients about guns and where they're stored and how to store them safely. The third is that ACOG opposes governmental restrictions or requirements dictating the content of physician-patient counseling regarding firearms. There have been historically cases of states trying to restrict the questions that can be asked about guns in the home or the use of guns, um, and ACOG, again, strongly opposes this. Four, ACOG also encourages the appropriate federal and state agencies to support and fund research, surveillance activities, public education, and anti-violence initiatives that recognize and address the role of IPV and firearms in the health and safety of women. ACOG supports laws and regulations limiting the purchase and ownership of firearms by individuals with emergency, temporary, or permanent protective or restraining orders, or those with a history of intimate partner violence, aggression, or stalking convictions. And finally, ACOG encourages improved access to mental health care and services, as being a victim of IPV is going to be something that may cause um, long-term mental health issues. 
All right, Faye. So I think that brings us to an end of this episode. Why don't we try and wrap up? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, we started talking about IPV and its definition. So really, it is it has a very broad definition. Essentially, assaultive or coercive behavior that is perpetrated by someone in a dating or intimate relationship. And it is a problem that is very, very common, unfortunately, affecting potentially up to one in three American women. We then talked about certain populations who are at risk for IPV or higher risk really for IPV. Amongst those are pregnant women, adolescents, immigrant women, and women with disabilities or elderly women. We also talked about screening for IPV and how we should do this. ACOG recommends that OBGYNs screen their patients on a frequent basis as women may not disclose IPV during the first time asking. Um, and it should take place when the patient is alone and is in a safe setting and also with professional interpreters only and not with family members. Also, language is very important and we should be using words that um, are not stigmatizing. Again, if you have a positive screening question, you need to ascertain the patient's immediate safety and assist in the development of a safety plan. A private phone in your office to call the National Domestic Violence Hotline, again, 1-800-799-7233, is an important step. Additionally, mandatory reporting of intimate partner violence or elder abuse varies by jurisdiction. We'll have a link on our website to those laws for your state. If it's a minor that's involved, that is a mandatory reporting requirement to the police. ACOG also does support evidence-based approach to gun violence and has put out six recommendations in terms of legislative priority. All right, so once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy this podcast, go ahead and find us on iTunes, Google Play, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us on social media, on Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee One, on Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, or on Patreon, where you can support us and get a shout-out or some cool swag from the show, patreon.com slash Coffee. For some adjunct learning material and all the amazing links that we're going to be posting for this particular episode, go ahead and go onto our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have any questions, concerns, think we missed out on something, or an idea for a future episode, give us an email, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.